You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavon, senior critic at large here at The Post. And today, my guest is Shelley Lowe. She's the chair of the National Endowment of the Humanities. Chair Lowe, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Robin. It is a pleasure to join you. Well, I wanted to start by just letting our audience uh, know exactly what the agency does. Oh, well, thank you. That is a wonderful question, and it's a question that I get fairly often. Uh, but before I go into that, I'd like to introduce myself very quickly. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Shelley Lowe. I am Navajo. I'm originally from Granado, Arizona, and I currently live and work in Washington, D.C., on the homelands of the Piscataway peoples. And when my work in NEH and, and the agency and what we address, um, we're looking at supporting the cultural infrastructure cultural heritage of the American country, of the American people, to really highlighting work within that arena to teach civics education, to teach about our history, and to really highlight all of the cultural wealth and knowledge that we have in this country. And we do that through a number of avenues, through grant programs, but also through support to our 56 state and jurisdictional humanities councils. We have heard so much and we continue to hear so much about the importance of science and engineering and technology. I'm wondering if you can just sort of give us your pitch for why these other areas are equally as important to our understanding of who we are and also who, how we will move into the future. Well, thank you, Robin. That's a wonderful uh, question as well. We do get a lot of focus on science, technology, engineering, and we don't have a lot of conversations about what humanities is, but also the strength of humanities. And it's my goal to really focus on um, how we look at humanities, how we dissect humanities, because these are the these are the teachings that we have as cultural human beings. These are the stories that tell us who we are as people, how we are to relate to one another, how we develop our governments, how we have democracy, how we relate to the natural world. These are our teachings that have been passed down through centuries and years through various means. And our humanities institutions such as higher education institutions, museums, archives, cultural centers, they are capturing that humanities for us and they're continuing to enrich our lives every day by promoting the humanities and bringing that into our everyday lives. And I think that that's something that we often forget about, but it's something that happens every single day. Humanities is a part of our everyday lives, whether we kind of really think about it and put it front and center or not. Um, these are important conversations and important things that we learn from. Well, that's a perfect lead in to um, the recent news that um, just about just over twenty eight million dollars in grants um, was uh, given out to about two hundred and four different humanities projects across the country. A lot of them, um, just in my quick sort of scrolling through, seem to really focus on areas about identity and uh, sort of clarifying identity um, you know, now and for future generations. 
Can you talk about a little bit about like any particular uh, grads that um, you found to be particularly interesting or particularly telling about uh, what people, the kind of research people are doing now? Yes, that's a, we're very excited about our recent grant announcements. And I think that a lot of the work that we've been moving forward and encouraging is taking a look at undertold stories, those narratives that we just haven't had as part of our national narrative. I always tell people we're such a great country and we have such great stories, but we don't always hear all of the different and diverse stories. So take, for example, under some humanities initiatives and under education grants, we are going to support curriculum at the University of Denver on youth leaders of the Chicano movement. We're also supporting Portland State University's higher education and prison programs, which is going to provide college level liberal arts courses to incarcerated students at a women's correctional facility. And I have to say, I'm very excited that uh, Diné College is going to be offering a forum on Diné concepts of land and dwelling and having these larger community conversations. We're also supporting a grant through the Hawaii Community College focusing on the cultural and ecological history of the Palamanui Forest Preserve. A really great look at what is it, what's our relationship to the natural world, what does the natural world teach us, and how do we interpret that teaching in the cultural practices and the ways that we live. Um, I'm really excited about many of these programs, but I think that um, in terms of really looking at the history and the books that are coming out of humanities funding, that's been really exciting. We will be funding a book on the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee that trained civil rights leaders such as Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr., uh, John Lewis. We're also gonna be looking at supporting, or we are supporting a project on the Hollywood dances of the 40s and 60s and how these uncredited dancers rehearsed stars choreographies before films of the golden age came out. And we're looking at funding research on black leisure and tourism in the Jim Crow era. And these are just a, a, a small number of the grants that we are focusing on, but really untold stories that we haven't had the opportunity to hear about. And a lot of those stories really also seem to dive into, you know, kind of the thick of the cultural maelstrom right now. Um, I mean, how one of the things that you said earlier uh, was about how the humanities really help us have those prickly conversations, those difficult conversations. What do you see as the most sort of difficult and yet uh, important conversations that we need to be having right now? Well, I think one of the challenges that we, we see at the agency, and this is a very important conversation, is how to define humanities, how to have the general population be talking about humanities in a way that really moves forward the work that we're trying to do. I think one example that we have announced most recently with our, our recent round of funding is a $1.7 million two-year cooperative agreement that extends the Educating for American Democracy initiative, which was originally co-sponsored and co-funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Department of Education, and iCivics. And this program will continue to move forward. And what will happen is 
school systems will be able to use the roadmap developed through the Educating Through American Democracy. We'll partner with museums, with historic sites, and with libraries to create curriculum, student curriculum, in K through 12 schools to really talk about what civic engagement is, to address humanities and civics, and to really have students understand by looking at objects, by being um, and uh, participating in institutions, what it means to be civically engaged. And part of being civically engaged is understanding what the humanities is and understanding what the humanities can do. And I really think that that's a, a real important conversation that we need to continue to be having. You said that one of the debates that you're having within the agency is defining the humanities. I, I'm surprised. I mean, what is that debate about? It's about how the public understands humanities. We find often that you talk about humanities and the public understands it as a very broad concept, something that doesn't have a lot of definition, in, at least in the ways that they have kind of lived their daily lives and the things that they think about. But humanities is very important in our lives, which we have talked about. And we really want to make sure that the work of the agency is promoting an understanding of the humanities promoting an understanding of the importance of the humanities and how it plays a role in our lives every day, but also how humanities can help us and help us to tell those stories that we haven't heard about before and give us the tools to really look at difficult topics and be able to bring information forward and share it in ways that really are um, helpful for the broader public. You know, one of the, the programs that you guys are funding is American Tapestry, and it sort of looks at past, present, and future. And in doing that, I mean, it touches on democracy and equity as well as climate change. I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think some people might be surprised at the idea that the humanities encompasses climate change. Yes, that is a very good question. Our American Tapestry Initiative, which is weaving together the past, the present, and the future, will um, highlight and focus on programs in three areas, and you, and you named them all, strengthening our democracy, advancing equity for all, but also addressing our changing climate. It's important for us to understand that the humanities do give us a tool to understand how the climate change and how climate affects um, what we do in everyday life as human beings, our cultural heritage, what happens to archives, what happens to collections um, when severe natural disasters happen. How do we really think about safeguarding and being um, creating resilient institutions that can focus on the longevity of our cultural heritage, of keeping that cultural heritage intact, particularly as we start to think about and plan about changes in the environment, but also using humanities to research um, just the effects of climate change and the human impact that climate change has had on our entire environment. How do you keep politics out of all of this? I mean, all of these topics are just hot button issues in the realm of politics. I mean, do you, do you just ignore it? Do you just shut it out? I mean, how do you how do you stay out of it? We have a very, very, very good review process for all of our grants and our applications. And part of that is ensuring that a, a, a particular political 
um, thought or a political way of thinking or religious um, stays out of our work. We want to ensure that our work is bipartisan. We want to ensure that our work is for everybody. Humanities is for all and NEH is, as an agency, a funding agency is here to support projects that are for all Americans, not particularly for one side or the other, and projects that don't try to argue a certain point of view. It's very important for us to make sure that our projects are educating the American public and bringing forth information and knowledge in, in a very bipartisan way. But the, there is a point of view in terms of the, um, the, the ways in which the agency wants to open up and broaden uh, the organizations that receive grants. I mean, I know that you're particularly interested in uh, opening that up more to historically black colleges and universities, Hispanic serving institutions and tribal colleges. I mean, why is that uh, such an essential part of um, the agency and particularly your tenor at the agency? It's, it's important to me because I, I spent six years on the Council, the National Council for the Humanities, the, the body that um, advises the chair on our grant making and our grant awards. One of the things that I noticed sitting on the council and reviewing applications, seeing where applications were coming from, was um, a real noticeable difference in the number of applications that came from small organizations, from tribal colleges, from historically black colleges and universities, from small Hispanic serving institutions, and even from community colleges. I found that they didn't apply very often. I found that when they applied, they weren't awarded fairly often, but there wasn't a lot of contact and outreach and kind of encouraging and finding out why this was happening. And it was really important to me when I came in to say, you know, I, I believe so much in this agency and the work of the agency, but I want to make sure that we are reaching those smaller communities, smaller organizations who are doing really outstanding great work in their communities, but have not had success in applying and receiving funding from NEH. And I, I came in with a real desire to expand opportunities for all Americans to participate and benefit from the humanities research, education, and public programs that we fund. So we've done a number of initiatives to help move this forward. American Tapestry is one with some new grant lines that are really geared towards smaller institutions, really geared towards serving underserved populations, but also to develop um, an avenue and a mechanism to make sure that our grant making is informed by data. We have just developed an office of data and evaluation and just hired the director for that office. And we're going to use the data that we have within our agency to really look at our work and to see where we are reaching, where we are not reaching, and how we can continue to do more outreach. We'll de develop this into an office of outreach that will really help guide how we get out into communities, how we encourage communities, small organizations to be a part of NEH, to understand the work that we do, and to see how our funding and our resources can really move their projects forward. Were you finding that these smaller organizations uh, or these more varied organizations just didn't feel that uh, the National Endowment of, of Humanities was a place that was welcoming to them, or were they looked simply looking elsewhere and finding funding elsewhere? I had I had heard both. So I had been in meetings with organizations, smaller universities, smaller museums, 
who have literally said, well, NEH is not for us. NEH doesn't fund small organizations. And there could be a number of reasons for that. Some reasons being that many of our grant lines are very large. It's, it's, a, it's a large amount of funding that small organizations may not necessarily want to take on in terms of the projects that they're trying to move forward. But I think that we, I also heard multiple instances of smaller organizations um, applying to NEH and not being successful. And instead of kind of reapplying, uh, reaching out to the staff to talk about the application, to get reviewer comments, you know, they took it as a sign of, okay, well, this is not for me. I'm not going to move that forward. And we're really trying to create an avenue where that's not the case, where it's not that if you didn't get funded your first time around, it doesn't mean that the NEH is not for you. Let's consider um, looking at the comments and the reviewers have made and thinking about resubmitting. We have found that over time, some um, applications, smaller organizations have become successful and have gotten awards from NEH after they have um, resubmitted, spoken to the staff, really assessed their application and really um, redeveloped it and, and put it in in a way that was um, meeting all the criteria that our grants are um, trying to fund. I mean, clearly it's it's important for these organizations to be able to get funding from um, NEH, but why is it important for NEH to bring them into the fold, so to speak? I think it, it goes back to that humanities is for all and NEH is here to fund humanities excellence for all Americans. So we want to be able to be reaching all of those populations and all of those rural areas. And I think it's it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of effort, but it's something that the staff is very much committed to and we're going to move forward with it. And just recently, uh, the Jefferson lecture was given by Andrew Del Banco and he talked about uh, reparations. I I'm curious to know sort of what your thinking is in terms of the way that we sort of reckon with our, our history. And, um, you know, sort of the second part of that question is what seems to be a very active uh, desire in some parts of the country to not reckon with that history. Yes, I, I, I thank you for talking about the Jefferson Lecture. We were very excited about this. This was the 50th anniversary of the Jefferson Lecture, which is the highest honor um, from the federal government to someone who has been doing work in the humanities. Uh, Professor Andrew Del Banco came in and talked about reparations, and we hosted this event at Lincoln's Cottage here in Washington, D.C. And he really broke down through looking at historical materials, looking at historical conversations about how reparations has been addressed or how it has not been addressed, how it has moved forward in conversations, what has stopped it from moving forward, not in a sense to tell us whether or not reparations was right or wrong, but to show us how humanities can help us really gather information, can help us do really in-depth looks and and um, assessments of topics that are difficult and how to bring information forward and to inform individuals so that they can move forward in making their own decisions or move forward and furthering conversations on these difficult items. I think it is very important for us to continue to look at history because history has been told in a number of different ways depending on who was telling it. History has um, come forward that we haven't been uh, privy to in the past and humanities um, 
funding and the work that we do through the agency is really helping to bring this forward and, and to bring it to the American public, to inform them about these really difficult topics and giving them the tools to think about these topics and to really think and, and become curious, I think, on how to move forward and get more information. In, in that same vein, I mean, how would you assess, um, you know, the country's reckoning, understanding of Native American history? I find it um, that it's a growing topic that individuals are learning about. Um, I find I meet individuals all the time who um, willfully say, I never learned about American Indian history in this country. I never learned about tribes. I was told that tribes no longer exist, that Native American people no longer exist. And it's it's a reflection in the for the most part on the lack of education, lack of information that was told to them. And it's it's something that we are trying to really address, um, particularly more recently, we're going to be supporting the boarding school initiative, the federal boarding school initiative under the Department of the Interior, because it's in, it's a history that not very many Americans are aware of or may only be aware of um, at kind of you know a high level, but not to the extent that these federal Indian boarding schools, um, over 400 that they have been able to identify so far, were all over the country and that they ran for many years and they had different ways of affecting communities, different ways of affecting the attendees of these institutions, but how that history has really affected tribal communities today. And it's I mean, really taking process. Native children away from their communities and their parents. Yep. And it's important for us to understand what this history looks like because it's important to understand its effects on communities today. I mean, you have made history as the first Native American to head the agency. I mean, when did you become inspired to um, um, spend your life in the world of humanities and, and higher education? I got interested in um, humanities and higher education after my first uh, very difficult year in college at the University of Arizona. Um, after being told that I would fail because I was Native American, that um, Native Americans never you know, graduate from college um, and understanding that Native Americans do graduate from college, but understanding the mechanisms that really support Natives and their success in higher education, which does relate back to humanities and, and culture and understanding who you are and why you're in higher education and what you can do through gaining higher education. I mean, I, I know that it's uh, it's always challenging to be the first and, you know, everyone always says that they, uh, you know, they don't want to be the last, but it, how do, has your background really informed the way that you're leading the organization? I hope that my background um, has allowed me to understand that I have to hear from other people. I have to be guided through their um, needs, through what communities are looking for, to hearing what type of information and resources that communities don't have access to, um, knowing what it is that they would like to have access to, and then really working closely with communities to understand how do we build that access? How do we help in terms of bringing forward particularly humanities resources into a community and building that? Um, it's really important to me to understand and hear from individuals 
and hear from them what their needs are, as opposed to saying, you know, this program, this grant would be excellent, um, but only because I think it's excellent, that's not going to be helpful. You know, when you were uh, part of the advisory committee, and I can't remember the exact question, but um, it it sparked this answer that in which you talked about the connection between the individual and communities and the, the natural world, the world around us. I, I was hoping you could talk just a little briefly about that because I, I think it's something that sort of gets lost in the conversation about technology and policy and all the things that go along with this. Right. Uh, that was a very memorable moment, Robin. I had been, I think it was my first meeting as a council member. I was very intimidated. I was sitting in a room with uh, the 26 other council members. Well, I think we had about 21 at the time. And uh, then Chair Bro Adams asked everyone a question. He asked everyone to kind of reflect on at what moment did you understand um, humanities and the importance of humanities and that you wanted to be working in humanities? And uh, different members went around the room, talked about, oh, a book that I had read in a class, a course that I had taken, a museum exhibit that I had visited, um, these, you know, things that had made them reflect on humanities. And I said, I, it got to me and I said, well, I don't have a particular moment where I felt like, oh, humanities is really important and I, and I want to have um, a career focused on supporting humanities and moving humanities forward. I said, if I really have to think about it, I was surrounded by humanities all the time. It was part of the culture that I saw every day going to school, talking to um, Navajo teachers and Navajo teacher aides and the artwork that I saw every day and the language that I heard every day and the understandings that were taught to me as a child about who you are as a person, both as a Navajo person and, and through my uh, mother's family who are from uh, farm communities in the Midwest. I said it was always a part of who I was. You couldn't have, I couldn't have my identity without fully understanding that that's what humanities was. So I said, it's always been there. And I think that that's one of the things that we forget. We forget that humanities is always there. It's a part of who we are. And as you think about your your tenure that tenure there, I, I mean, how would you respond to those people who want to stifle conversations about race and gender and identity, who um, you know want to push aside uh, the life of the mind, as uh, a lot of academics say? I think that you know, in my conversations, we go back to our founding legislation that democracy demands wisdom. And that is what we do through the agency. We we support projects, we support research that creates um, humanities education and, and wisdom that is grounded in the humanities. So we will always continue to support that and support grants that move our humanities education forward. And you know, pointing back to the fact that it's it's a part of our democracy and it, it's what makes our democracy strong. And my last question is if you could, uh, you know, list your top two goals uh, for 2023, uh, what might they be? Top goals for 2023 are to um, greatly expand the uh, awards that we give into small and rural communities. 
but not just the um, awards that we give, greatly expand our outreach and our understanding of those communities. Direct outreach, so being on the ground, understanding who those communities are and understanding their needs and ensuring that it's not just, it's me who's out on the ground and understanding, but the staff of the agency is on the ground and understanding and we're getting a good sense of the areas that we need to be doing more work in and, and avenues for be, being able to do that. Uh, the second part is I hope to make a dent in really getting people to understand what humanities is. Um, I keep asking individuals to uh, create a, a some kind of tagline or a phrase that we can use all the time. Um, you know, social media, what, what can we do? What can we put out there that says, yep, that's humanities and everybody understands it. Well, Cherlo, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, and I appreciated you inviting me, and I loved having the conversation. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.